All right. Hello, Christ community. I am so glad you are here. I'm so glad to be here. I mean, I love this church and I love what God is doing here. This is such an exciting time for us as a church. As we've been discussing for the past couple weeks, God has given our church an incredibly powerful vision to impact the lives of thousands of people in our city, in our region, and our world for generations to come. We're calling this vision for the city and beyond as a reflection of our heartbeat to be for the spiritually lost and broken all around us. So it is a vision that involves focusing our hearts as a church, focusing our hearts on nine areas of need. We want to be for children and families in our city. We want to be for the emotionally broken and addicted, providing healing and help for people battling anxiety and depression. We want to be for those caught in the cycles of poverty, for refugees in our city, for those trapped in gangs by building relationships with them. We want to be for those who are disconnected from a church community in our region. And there are lots of people disconnected from a church community. We want to be for them by utilizing the land that God gave us a few years ago to build a permanent campus on the the west side of town, having two vibrant campuses, one at 15th Street and one on West 10th, enables us to better reach the growing, this growing region with well over 100,000 people that are spiritually lost. We want to be for the marketplace in our city, using this land to create a destination. It's more than just a church building. We want to create a destination development where people can hang out and connect, including lots of green space and, and gathering spaces and bike paths. We want to be for leadership development. And also, we want to be for the expansion of the gospel around the world, continuing our global partnerships in, in, in bringing compassion and church planning and leadership development to 20 of the most needy countries and people groups on the planet. I mean, it is an incredibly exciting vision that God is inviting us to be a part of. In fact, I can't wait for the, the 24-hour prayer event that's happening beginning this Friday. It's Friday noon to Saturday noon broken up into 24 hour long intervals. And we encourage you where there's going to be, there'll be stations for every one of those nine initiatives. And we encourage you to take an hour. If you're one of those, you know, adventurous people come at two o'clock in the morning. Okay. The building's going to be open. Um, come and, and pray. You can pray with some friends, yours or whatever. And you can go through all the nine initiatives and pray for those things. We want to, we want to just bathe this in prayer for 24 hours. So I'm really, really excited about that. Now, if you don't know anything of what I'm talking about, about For the City and Beyond. You're like, what is this? If you've missed the last couple weeks that is, and you don't know really what I'm talking about, that is totally cool. Um, we have put together a packet of information about this vision. It's on the tables in the next area, in the, the lobby, in the, uh, in the lobby at whatever campus you're at here. And uh, you can please grab one of those packets. I also encourage you to go to uh, www.forthecityandbeyond.org and listen to the message I gave two weeks ago where I cast the vision in more detail. And at that website, you can also watch the seven-minute overview video that we put together. We showed that last week. People were fired up about it. Lots of people viewed it this last week online. You can go there and you can watch it. You can share it also. Our desire, really, our desire is that you have all the information you need to capture the heartbeat of this vision and to prayerfully explore with God how you can be involved in it. So please feel free to ask questions of staff people, elders, myself. We are all in and we would love to answer any questions you have. This is definitely a God-sized vision. Okay, so how does a vision like this move forward? How, does, how, does this, how is this vision going to happen? Well, we've been discovering the answer to this question by looking at this amazing guy in the Old Testament named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a Jew who had a significant role in, in the staff, on the staff of King Artaxerxes, who was king of Persia. And one day, Nehemiah heard that the walls of his hometown of Jerusalem were broken down. The people were vulnerable 
vulnerable to attack. And Nehemiah's heart is broken by this news. And so he fasts and he prays about this and he gives them, and, and God, in the midst of that, God gives him a vision to go and repair the walls of Jerusalem. So he goes to the city and he helps the people see their need in the city, see the need in the city. And then he mobilizes them to take action. Every person is assigned a portion of the wall and together they begin rebuilding it. That's the heart of this for the city and beyond vision. It involves us seeing the need, seeing the needs, the brokenness all around us, and then partnering together as a church, partnering together to help rebuild these spiritually broken walls. This includes, and we've been saying this all along, this includes a relational component. We want to activate the hearts of each person in this church to be for the city. And this means each of us individually or in our e-groups moving towards people in need around us, in the areas that one of those nine areas that we're focusing on. And it also involves, so a people component, it also involves a financial component. Seeking the Lord, each one of us seeking the Lord about how he might want us to be involved financially in this project over the next three years. <clears throat> there are more details about the financial piece and a lot of stuff in the packet I mentioned earlier, and we want every, every family to have that. Have a packet. Okay, so at this point in the Nehemiah story, we see this vision moving forward. The people see the need, right? They're willing to be a part of the solution, and they give of themselves to make that happen. End of story. Uh, not quite. Uh, we see something else occurring, beginning in chapter 4, something that threatens to undermine this God-given vision, and that something is opposition, Anytime God's kingdom is moving forward, there is always going to be spiritual opposition to that. And it is critically important that we recognize this opposition, that we recognize the strategies that our enemy is going to use to try and derail God's vision for our individual lives as well as for our church. So in the story of Nehemiah here, we see two primary sources of opposition, and they are the exact same two sources of opposition that we will inevitably face as well. Maybe we're already facing these two sources of opposition. The first source of opposition is fear. Fear. In chapter four, we learn about these two guys named Sanballat and Tobiah. Um, that'd probably be good dog names, okay? If you're looking for a dog name, maybe that would work. But uh, Sanballat and Tobiah, they are not Jews, but they have some authority and influence in this region. So let me read um, beginning in Nehemiah chapter four, verse seven. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that repairs in Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come up and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. That's their goal, to stir up trouble that, that, that phrase means to bring confusion and difficulty through their false words and ideas. That's exactly what our enemy loves to do. This is, this is a picture of what our enemy loves to do. He loves to stir up trouble with his lies, and he's really good at it. He's, he's very effective. Okay, so look at what happens in this account. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Do you see what's happening here? I mean, the people start saying, our strength is giving out. The job is too big. These guys are going to attack us. I mean, it's, it is clear that the people are kind of freaking out here, that they're kind of freaking out. Ten times over, Nehemiah says. I mean, he's feeling it. And Nehemiah knew exactly what the problem was. This was not, this was not, listen very carefully, this was not ultimately about the strength of this supposed army that was coming against them. No, no, no. This was about one thing, fear. Notice what Nehemiah says to the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. 
and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I love that. Don't be afraid of them. Look at the Lord who is awesome. Don't be afraid of them. Look at the Lord who is awesome. See, that is the way to battle fear. That's always the way to battle fear. It's, it's all about what we're focusing on. See, notice in this, in this account here, notice this supposed army never attacks. You can read it for yourself. They never attack. It never gets organized. But that doesn't seem to matter. Why? Because the people think it's getting organized. And that thought begins to grow into lots of what ifs. What if they attack? What if we don't have enough this? What if, I mean, our enemy loves to get us to focus on what ifs. Why? Because that's where fear breeds. And when fear breeds, guess what happens to our ability to move forward in what God's calling us to do? We pull back. We hesitate. We hunker down. We circle the wagons. We stop doing what God has called us to do because this, these what ifs. I mean, this can happen in so many areas of our lives. What, what if I offer to pray with my neighbor and, and she says no? What if I apply for that promotion and I don't get it? What if I fail? What if I'm rejected? I mean, we hear those what ifs all the time and they can cause us to miss what God wants to do in us and through us. And this is especially, I mean, it relates to every area of our life, but this is especially true as it relates to our For the City and Beyond vision that God has given to us as a church. In this vision, God is calling us to engage in significant generosity. He is calling us to look at all of our resources, our possessions, our savings account, our, our business income, our investments, our securities, our assets, all of it as ultimately being his. And in that to ask, okay, God, what would you have me do with these resources that you've blessed me? What would you have me do with these resources as it relates to this for the city and beyond vision? Now, I know, I know in all of our hearts, there is a stirring, there is a desire to reach more people, more lost people for Jesus. There is a desire to heal brokenness and to love refugees and to help children in need. I know that desire is there. I sense it in our church, in the conversations I'm having. I am sensing a palpable, growing excitement about this for the city and beyond vision. Uh, you know, as it's, as it move, as it's going to move us towards those in need. I, I'm sensing the excitement, but I also know that in many of our hearts and including some of the processing I've done, I shared a little bit this last week, but I know that in many of our hearts, as we're praying about and thinking about financially being involved in this vision, we're getting hammered by lots of what ifs. What if the stock market continues to slide? What if so-and-so gets elected and you fill in the blank? Well, what if the economy collapses? What if war breaks out? What if, what if, as I mentioned a moment ago, what, what happens when what ifs become the focus of our hearts? We circle the wagons. We pull back. We tighten our grip. We stop listening to God about our finances because we don't want him to stretch our generosity in any significant way. See, fear, fear is having a huge impact in our lives. And it's especially true in our finances. There is so much fear in the body of Christ right now. I mean, seriously, I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, I can relate to it at one level. It is just so, there's such a fear in the body of Christ throughout our country right now. And in the hearts of Christians these days. And honestly, it is negative. We're just, we're just feeding on it. And it's negatively impacting the advancement of the kingdom. We end up focusing on all these things. And it causes us to, to miss out on the advancement of the kingdom. I think it's impacting it. Honestly, we, we, are, we are light years. At times, I think we are light years from truly living out Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12. Listen to this. Think about how we as Christians in America are kind of living right now, okay? And, and then, then listen to this. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail. Wow. I mean, do we live the way Jesus describes here? As God's trusting little flock who hasn't a care in the world about provision, whose hearts are freed to be extravagantly generous because God promises to provide what we need? Is that how we're living? Or are we bound up by fear as it relates to our finances, our, our possessions, and what might we be missing as a result? What might we be missing as a result? Jesus is saying to us today, don't focus on the what ifs and miss what I have in store for you. Trust your heavenly father who is great and awesome. Trust him. He's got this. That's what Jesus is saying to us. Okay, so fear, fear is one very powerful form of opposition that we will experience. Perhaps we're already experiencing it. And in every facet of our life, it can show up, and especially in, the, in a vision like we're pursuing as a church. Okay, now in chapter 5, we see another area of opposition in this wall-building vision moving forward. What happens in this chapter is that in the midst of everyone focusing on rebuilding the wall, there are some internal conflicts that begin to happen among the people. And these conflicts relate to money. Um, some of the people begin to complain that the Jewish officials in the city, the higher-ups, the nobles, those in positions of, of financial wealth, that they were taking advantage of their fellow Jews. They were charging these exorbitant interest rates, so much so that some of these Jews um, had to actually sell their sons and daughters into slavery in order to make ends meet. So Nehemiah hears about this. He hears about this and he immediately responds because he knows this is very, very serious what's happening. So he responds by exposing this. Nehemiah 6 verses 6 through 11, Numai 5, excuse me, verses 6 through 11. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I, po I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. Now the heart issue we're not going to go into all the specifics about what was going on there. I think we can kind of get the gist of it. I think they were just overly charging too much interest. It was just unfair. And so that was the, that was, that was the logistical details. But the heart issue that's going on is very clear. It's greed. It's greed. These people with financial resources were closing their eyes to the needs around them, all the while padding their own wallets and their own savings accounts. That their greed, their desire for their, for their own personal comfort had blinded them to God's heart. And it was actually hindering this vision from moving forward. And that's exactly what greed does. It's another form of opposition. That's what greed does. And it's why so often in scripture, God warns us about greed. In fact, let's look at Luke chapter 12. Again at Luke chapter 12. We just read from there. We're going to jump back in. This is a really powerful passage where Jesus addresses this topic so, so powerfully. Verse 13, this is how the subject comes up. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Nothing like money to create family conflict, right? That's exactly what's happening here. This guy is demanding that Jesus solve, <clears throat> more than solve, he wants Jesus to side with him in whatever money dispute was happening in, in an inheritance kind of family inheritance sort of issue. Um, well, Jesus immediately identifies the heart issue. Jesus is always going for the heart in his teaching, and he does it here, again, so powerfully, which is why he, he doesn't really respond directly to the man to fix his problem. What he says to the gathered crowd is this, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, this is without a doubt, this is without a doubt, one of Jesus' strongest warnings in scripture. So think about this. When Jesus, the son of God, our savior, when Jesus nearly shouts at us to watch out, we would be wise to pay attention to what he's talking about. He is warning us against greed. And he points out exactly what greed is rooted in. He says it right here. It is rooted in the lie that life consists in an abundance of possessions. That real life, you know, I'm talking about joy and meaning and purpose and security and all those things. That real life is found in, in having money and things. That's the lie. That's the root of greed. Now, here's the thing that we, we all need to understand about greed. <clears throat> None of us think we have a problem with it. None of us think we have a problem with it. No one thinks they have a problem with greed. I've mentioned in other contexts that being in pastor for 26 years, I've had people in my office confessing all sorts of things. I have never had anyone in my office confessing greed. No one thinks they have a problem with greed. Who do we all think who do, who do we all think has a problem with greed? Everyone else. Everyone else. Anyone who makes more money than we do, or spends more money than us, or who drives a nicer car than us, or who lives in a, a bigger house than us, or who gets a larger cheeseburger than us, or whatever, they have a problem with greed, but not me. So let, let's, just, let's just get this, let's just set the record straight right now, okay? We all have a problem with greed. Can you repeat after me? I have a problem with greed, okay? I have a problem with greed. Good, good, okay. We all, let's just admit it, we all have a problem with greed. Every one of us, every one of us at some level thinks that life is found in having more stuff. Every one of us has a problem with this. We just don't see it in ourselves. We see it in everyone else. We don't see it in ourselves. So every one of us has a problem with this at some level. For some of us, this shows up in our spending habits. We spend way more than we make. Way more than we can afford. We max out our credit cards, piling up consumer debt just to satisfy our desire for a newer this or a nicer that or whatever. So that's one indicator of greed, is our spending habits. But there's another, more subtle way greed can manifest itself, and that's through our saving. It's through our saving. Now, please hear me. I am not against saving money. I think it's important. I think it's good stewardship to save money responsibly. But for some of us, our saving is our security, we are focused on storing up way more than we will ever need. We never feel like we have enough. And we look at everyone else with spending a lot and we kind of pride ourselves, I don't have a problem with greed. I mean, they do, they're spending so many, but I don't have a problem with greed. But we do have a problem with greed. Sometimes this manifests itself in obsession with pinching pennies, i.e. being cheap, right? You know, saving money makes us feel secure. This is a heart issue. Again, both these are heart issues. Now, you may think I'm overstating the saving thing, that saving could be an indicator of greed. You may think I'm overstating it, but let's just keep reading in the text because this is exactly the example Jesus uses to make his point. Verse 16, and he told them this parable. Right after this warning, watch out, be in your guard. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store up my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says, this is, he's summarizing the whole point of the story. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Notice this man's greed was evidenced by his saving strategy. He viewed his wealth as being his, uh, he viewed his wealth as being his, that he owned it. And that the, the primary purpose of his wealth was for his own comfort, his own pleasure, his own security, right? He didn't say, hey, I had this great crop. I'm going to give more away. He didn't say that. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to save more. If I just build a bigger barn, I, if I can just save more, then I can relax. And then I'm finally, I finally arrived and I can enjoy life. And Jesus says, you fool. You're storing up things for yourself, but you are not rich towards God. So what does Jesus mean by not being rich towards God? If we miss this, we miss the whole point of the story. What does he mean here? What does that look like? Well, Jesus tells us in the next verses, which is the passage we read earlier. It's the exact, remember, remember what he said? Don't set your heart on, on what you will eat or drink. Seek God's kingdom, be generous, sell your possessions, give to the poor, be generous, and you will store up treasure in heaven. See, that's how, Jesus is saying, this is how you can make sure you're rich towards God. According to Jesus, there is only one way, there is only one way to make sure that greed is not taking hold of our hearts. And that way is generosity. Giving of our resources to the work of God's kingdom. Generosity drives a stake through the heart of greed in our lives. And it's the only thing that can do that. Not reading books, not praying, not listening to sermons. Those, I mean, those things can be helpful in our journey, but the only thing that actually frees our heart from greed is giving. The only thing that frees our hearts from greed is giving. If you want to be free from greed, give stuff away. That's what he's saying. It's not read more books, listen to more sermons, pray more. No, if you want to be free from greed, give stuff away. Be generous. And here's why this works. The reason this works is money is always going after our hearts. Always. It is relentless, whether, whether through spending or saving, we, we easily put our hope, our trust in money. And it doesn't matter how much money we make. I'm not talking about that or how little we make. It's, it's a heart issue. So, so we always put our heart in, in, in money so, because it's, it's competing for our heart affection. So when we give generously, guess where we're putting our hope and our trust? In God. See, generosity forces us to trust God more deeply, which is a good thing. It's a really important thing. Our generosity, and the scripture says this in various other ways, but our generosity is a measurement of our spiritual health. We think, oh, how long, how are you doing spiritually? Yeah, we always ask each other, how are you doing spiritually? Oh, well, then we think, what do we think about immediately? Well, have I prayed lately? Have I read the word? How often do we go to genera generosity? How are you doing spiritually? Well, you know, I am giving more than I ever have. You ever heard that response? I haven't. Generosity is a measurement of our spiritual health. It's a measurement of our level of faith. And that's what God is most interested in. So what does what your generosity reveal about your level of faith? If it was a barometer of, of your, your level of faith or my level of faith, what does our generosity tell us? Tell about that. What does it reveal about that? What do our spending habits, what do our saving habits reveal about where we're putting our trust? I mean, it's one thing to talk about it. I mean, it's one thing to talk about generosity. It's another thing to actually live it. I mean, there are a lot of people talking about it. I just saw in the news how one of uh, the, the tax returns of one of the presidential candidates who was very vocal about their Christian faith, 
journalists were asking about the tax returns because these tax returns revealed that from the year 2006 to 2010, this person gave less than 1% of their income to charity. And, and the world kind of noticed that. Like, oh, you're a Christian and you gave 1% to charity and none to church, just 1% to charity. So they kept 99% for themselves. Now, statistics reveal that Christians give, on average, 2.7% of their income, which is not much better, really. So we live on 90%, excuse me, 97%. We live on 97% of what we earn. So what does that say about where our heart is? What does it say about where our heart is? This is a heart issue. This is not ultimately a money issue. This is a heart issue. Are we growing in our faith and our trust in God? And do, does our level of generosity reflect that? Because we can talk a game, good game, but our bottom line is our generosity matches with where our heart is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be, Jesus said. This is a heart issue. Now this season in our church, it's a great opportunity for all of us here to evaluate this area in our lives, to see if fear and greed are keeping us from all that God has for us and to take intentional steps to resist this opposition. So in light of this, I want to get really practical here and offer a diagram that I believe a kind of a tool here to get us thinking about this that can help us grow in this area. We're calling this the generosity pathway, okay? Generosity pathway. You'll notice at the top of this, this diagram is this statement that God owns everything. And that really is the foundation for generosity. When we're being generous, we are simply giving out of what has been entrusted to us. It's not ours anyway, it's his. And in his heart, God's heart is that we would all grow towards extravagant generosity. We would be on this pathway towards generosity to, to be like him. So in this diagram, we're going to see how each one of us can take a next step on this pathway, regardless of, I mean, wherever you're at, you can take a next path, a next step on this pathway, growing in generosity, again, no matter where we're at in this journey. This is ultimately, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's not about money, it's about discipleship. This is about growing spiritually. Now, as I walk through this, I'm gonna focus on our giving to this church because I believe as Christians, our giving to our church is a priority. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the fact that we should, can give other places and generosity can go beyond this church. Absolutely, to other worthy causes, absolutely. But I believe as Christians, our priority in giving is to be to our, the church we attend that we're a part of. Okay, so the first person in this diagram on this generosity pathway is a person here at Christ Community who has never, ever given to the church. Maybe you've given to other causes, but not your church family. If that's you, a great next step would be for you to give a financial gift to this church body of which you're a part. That's a big step. I understand that. Maybe you've never given to your church before. That's a big step. It's an important step. Well, the next person in this diagram is the person who gives occasionally. They have given to their church. They've given to this church, but it's not consistent. And if that's you, a great next step for you, you, know, you give occasionally, but a great next step for you growing in generosity would be to make that a consistent gift. Become an intentional giver. Give a regular contribution. I mean, we have, we have online options that can enable you to do a direct deposit from your bank account on a regular basis just to make sure this growing generosity thing is happening. It's a priority in your life. We have a lot of people that use that for that reason. So it's, it, it's a priority. It happens automatically. And so a lot of people in our church use that for, for, for that reason, which is great. Okay, for those of you who are regular givers, you are regular intentional givers, a next generosity growth step for you might be to become a tither. See, tithing is a biblical tool that God has given to us to help us grow in our generosity. The word tithe literally means 10%. That's what the word means. It means 10%. And so the idea is that we set aside 10% of our income, whatever income happens to be, we set aside 10% of our income for the Lord. And in fact, the language the Bible uses, if you ever do a study on this, it's fascinating because the language the Bible uses is that this 10% belongs to God. It is his. It's not ours. It is devoted to him. So no matter what our income, that 10% is his. Now, 
Given the national averages I mentioned a moment ago, I'm guessing that there are many of us here that the Lord's that we give regularly, but the Lord is inviting us to grow in our generosity by devoting 10% of our income to him, a tithe. It is a wonderful way to acknowledge that he comes first in our lives. He gets the first 10%. That's the principle. In fact, I was talking with someone in our church um, who as a college student, he's, he's been here for a few years, as a college student, he was attending as a college student a number of years ago, and he learned um, from the teaching here at Christ Community, he learned this principle of tithing. In fact, years ago, he heard me talk about a principle that I sometimes will mention called the 10-10-80 plan. The 10-10-80 plan. The idea in the 10-10-80 plan is to give 10% to the Lord, whatever income, 10% to the Lord first. That's the first 10%. And then to save 10% and then to live on the 80%. Well, and it's a great, great principle um, to, to, to begin applying. Well, he took, he took that to heart. He began immediately. He incorporated it into his life as a college student. He immediately began to tithe in, in the working he was doing then, the, the small jobs he had or whatever. Well, now he's a businessman here in town and he is still practicing this principle, 10 10 80 plan. He's, he's, it's awesome. He told me how impactful this has been in his life. It just became a habit. And then that 80% as God is blessing him. You know, he's, he's growing. I'll get to this in just a moment. He is growing beyond that tithe, which is really, really cool. And that's a great segue into this next, this next part of the diagram. For those of you who are tithers, that's great. That is great. But we are never to stop growing in our generosity. You know, the, the Bible never asserts, it never asserts that tithing is a cap on generosity. Once you hit tithing, you're done. It never asserts that, which is why tithing is not emphasized in the New Testament. It's mentioned once or twice. It is not emphasized. See, God's heart in the New Testament, God's heart is that we don't get stuck at 10%, but instead we keep growing in this area. I talked with someone recently who has made it a goal each year, a couple made it a goal each year to increase their percentage of giving by 1% to the Lord. So now they're up at like 14 or 15% or whatever. They didn't stop at 10%. They're, they're continuing to grow. I shared last week, um, my wife Raylene and my story of how God is leading us to participate in this For the City and Beyond vision. Even with two kids in college, we're excited about how we get to participate in this above and beyond our tithe, 10% tithe to this church. Um, and, and, it, and it involved us thinking outside the box. Uh, again, if you're interested, you can listen to last week's message, thinking outside a box a bit in terms of creative ways to give, looking beyond just our income, but some other creative things. And it's, it's a, it's a greater step of generosity than we've ever taken, but it's exciting. It's exciting for us. I talked with a couple um, in our church recently who are so fired up about generosity. They're using, they're using their business to find creative ways of growing in generosity to the Lord's work, not just in this church, but beyond that. And what I loved about this conversation, I was fired up afterwards. What I loved about this conversation was how excited they were about giving I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was so refreshing. <laughs> they were so excited about giving and about growing and generosity and the impact they could have. And it was just so cool. I mean, but it shouldn't be surprising. When we truly understand generosity from God's perspective, it is a joyful thing. It, it is not a get to, I mean, excuse me, it's not a have to. It's, it, it, it's not a reluctant thing. It's a get to. It's a get to. It's a tangible way to demonstrate our love for God and our trust in him. It's a tangible way to do that. And the result is peace and joy and life being poured into our lives. You know, from God's perspective, I was trying to think of an analogy. I think this is, this is something that struck me. From God's perspective, generosity is like Disneyland. It's like Disneyland. It's one of the happiest places on earth. But often we view generosity like going to the dentist. Do we have to? I mean, can you imagine telling your kids they're going to Disneyland and them responding, do we have to? We've already been once. Do we have to go back? That would never happen. <laughs> that would never happen. Why? Because Disneyland is fun. And so is generosity. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful, you can look at the Greek. It's the word from which we get hilarious. A hilarious giver 
is someone who understands that it's way more fun to give than to receive. Way more fun to give. God wants us to experience the blessing, the joy, the deepening trust, the peace that comes from growing in generosity. And gen generosity is a powerful way to drive back these two forces of opposition that are always working against us, fear and greed. Let's not let those two things keep us from all that God has for us as individuals and for us as a church. Wherever you are in that diagram mentioned earlier, God invites you. He challenges you to take a next step towards generosity, towards gen extravagant generosity. And I promise you, with the backing of the word of God and the stories of hundreds of people in my life, including my own story, you will never regret it. You will never regret it. Not only will your faith and joy grow, you will also be a part of God's kingdom advancing in significant ways in our city, in our region, in our world. Now, as it relates to this for the city and beyond vision, we are asking people, each one of us, to pray and to seek God about how he would want you to be involved in this vision. Making a three-year financial commitment. Could be weekly, could be monthly. It's over three years making a three-year financial commitment. And this includes everyone here. Maybe you're a high school student. Maybe you're a college student. Maybe everyone, everyone to pray and ask God about this, about growing in generosity. And then in two weeks, two weeks from this weekend, on March 5th and 6th, will be Commitment Weekend, where we will have the opportunity to, each of us will have the opportunity to, to turn in our commitment cards for this vision we are, we are excited about all that God is, is going to do in us and through each of us as we say yes to him. Now, as a way to finish this message, I want us to watch a video that we put together recently of a few people in our church who are saying yes to God's invitation to grow in generosity through this For the City and Beyond vision. I think that if there's things that I see that don't look right, I should be a part of their positive change. I should be a part of transforming those things into something brand new and fresh and for God's vision. We love Greeley. We love this community. And it just really excites me and Mike and I that we're going to be able to do something in a, in a tangible way to help further God's kingdom. What I liked most about the nine initiatives in particular was that um, not only what they are particularly geared towards, but that they're for. They're never against. And not one of those nine things is against anything. All of them are for change. Um, we're not fighting gang violence. We're for bringing kids out of gang violence. Those are extremely different qualities. I was pretty um, scared about the whole prospect of building another building. And then I thought about um, kind of how Myron feels about all the people that will be um, touched by this um, this building. Uh, things just fell in place. The timing was right. We are both at the age that we are required to take money out of our retirement funds. And it just became, uh, I would say, a natural thing as we talked about it, that, that we would uh, give to this our required distributions out of a retirement fund. The number made sense to us. We're required to do it by the IRS. This seems kind of funny, doesn't it, by the IRS. But it made sense to Marcia and I that this would be our gift for the project. We gave a lot of thought to our three-year commitment. Um, we certainly knew that we wanted to contribute and we wanted to commit to something that was going to be sacrificial to us, but also realistic. So we talked about it in the way we came up with our um, devotion, with our commitment was we took some quiet time amongst each other. Um, and then after the prayers happened and we heard what God was telling us, we, I came up with a number and Sherry came up with a number. And together we made the decision on a number that will 
requires some sacrifice, and we're excited about that because we realize that that will you know, create a more of a faith journey for us as we go through this. The three-year financial um, game plan for me came from um, the fast. I went three days, and then the next day, um, that Thursday, I started my official substitute teaching job. And it was my step in the door to start influencing children in public schools, you know, particularly Weld County District 6. My financial contribution is going to be one day's pay of every week. And that, for me, brings me conviction and clarity because I know that while I may be able to contribute financially, I know that simultaneously I can be a part of the vision itself. And the first time that I heard about the gift of the property, I've, I've been excited. Uh, I think that the iron is hot right now. It's time for us to strike. And this is going to be just perfect as we reach out with the kingdom to people right there. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thanks for this, um, this place you have us as a church <laughs> and what it's, what it's um, asking us to do personally. You, in this process, are taking us places that we wouldn't be going otherwise, and we're grateful. God, you're taking us places to just to think about activating our hearts. What would it look like to move towards broken and lost people in our community in a greater way than ever before? And that is so cool, Lord, for us individually, for e-groups. God, we want that to happen. We pray for that. But Lord, you're also asking us to take steps towards you in an area that's kind of hard sometimes, the area of our finances. And Lord, we confess, we confess that we often give way to fear as it relates to our finances. What if this happens? What if this happens to the economy? What if, Lord, we confess that so often our eyes are on all the what ifs and we stop focusing on you, Lord. We can focus on all the news and the, the things we're watching and hearing and reading on the internet, all that stuff, and we can get our hearts focused there and stop focusing on you, the Lord, who is great and awesome, as Nehemiah says. You don't, Lord Jesus, you don't want us to be afraid. You promised to provide. And so we thank you for being that kind of a God. Heavenly Father, thank you for being that kind of a Father who asks us to trust you. And to not put our, our affection and our trust in things, but to put our hope in you. So we confess our fear and we pray that you would set us free from these what ifs and we would fix our eyes on you. And then we pray, Lord, for this whole area of greed. We confess it even if it's, it's really hard to see in ourselves. It's easy to see in everyone else. It's harder to see in ourselves. And we just confess that, that we, each one of us here, we struggle with greed. We struggle with thinking that either through spending or saving that somehow life is found in having more stuff or having bigger saving, whatever, that comfort and life and security and, and peace and all those things and happiness are found in having an abundance of things. God, we confess that's us. That's our heart. But we want to break through that greed because it's, it's crippling spiritually. We want to break through that and thank you for the clarity of your word. It's not through, I mean, prayer can be helpful and reading books and hearing teaching can all be helpful, but ultimately it is generosity that frees us from greed. And so I pray for each one of us here, wherever we are at on that generosity pathway, I thank you that the invitation is to each one of us. It's not anyone better than anyone else. It's just an invitation to take a next step. And so I want to pray for each one of our hearts that we would ask you, okay, Lord, what's, what's my next step? I don't want to hunker down. I don't want to get stuck in this generosity journey. I want to grow. And so I pray that for each one of us as we ask that, you would show us what that next step is. And then give us the courage to do that, the faith to do that. And I pray 
for each one of us as we take those steps of faith, you would pour out blessing. You would pour out faith. You would pour out peace and joy and provision. And we would one day look back and say, man, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I took that step. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I hadn't. And maybe we could look, I pray that one day we'd look at our city and our region and world and think, oh, thank you, God, for inviting me to be a part of that. So we pray for this vision. We pray for commitment weekend coming up in a couple weeks, Lord, that as all of us are praying, you would speak to us about our involvement. That we would just follow your leading. And so I thank you for what you're doing in us our faith is being grown. You're what you're doing in us through this challenge and also what you're going to do through us. We are so excited about all of that. So Holy Spirit, fill us now. Fill us with your power and your love and, and your faith that we would grow. We would grow in this, this, all, this very important area for your glory, Lord. And thank you, God, that the ultimate reason, the ultimate motivation for generosity is because you're a generous God and every one of us here is a recipient of your grace and the abundance of just of your love and favor and grace poured out through your son, Jesus, the gift of your son, Jesus. And so as we wrestle with these things, we want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, you hung on a cross for us. You gave your life. You gave your all for us. And we're so grateful. We're the recipients of your generosity. Thank you for being such a generous God. So we want to now just respond to this generous God by worshiping him. So why don't you stand, whatever campus you're at here, why don't you stand as the worship team leads us. If you want to sit in at some point, that's totally cool. But let's set our hearts on Jesus. Jesus, set us free to worship you. We love you, God. Thank you, Lord.